Well, the Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thee thanks for this day, this seasonal warm weather, this group assembled, and for thy holy word. Now open our minds and our hearts to receive it and open our brains to live it. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We are at the 28th and last chapter of the book of Acts. We will finish Acts today. Next week we will um, do a summing up of Acts and Luke together. And then we will recess for the, for the Lenten season so that everybody can pursue their own Lenten discipline. We will come back the Sunday after Easter Sunday and for the rest of the year, for the rest of the church education year, right until about Memorial Day, we'll do um, post-resurrection stories. There's some really great stories in the Gospels from the 40 days and um, it will be difficult to narrow it down to the number of stories that will fill up the Sundays that we have left. I believe there would be three. Um, but now today we have um, the 28th chapter, which is a, another great story. <laughs> Last Sunday, if you were here, you heard in the 27th chapter the really engaging story about how Paul and his shipmates were shipwrecked. Um, they were caught in a storm in... Um, in the very, very late in the sailing season. They should not have left their last port in Crete uh, to try to get to Rome, but they did. They were aboard an Alexandrian grain ship, and the grain ship was caught in the storm and was driven by the storm. They couldn't turn around and, and, and tack their way back into the, um, the harbor where they'd come from. They, uh, the story is told in a way that um, makes clear that Luke was an eyewitness. He was there. He saw it. He lived it. He observed it. It's, it's written. It couldn't be thought up except a, a really skilled, experienced sailor, which Luke's terminology tells us that he was not. He could not make this up because he wasn't enough. He was too much of a landlubber to really be able to imagine this kind of voyage and this kind of shipwreck, but he was observing and reporting accurately the things he saw on board the ship. So the ship finds an island and makes for a, uh, a shallow bay, gets uh, hung up on the rocks. The, um, the stern is broken up by the surf and the ship is going down. So the, the uh, centurion, who is Paul's captor, Paul's jailer, sends the men who can swim ashore and then those who cannot swim ride the debris, body surf if you will, on the debris into the, onto the beach and that's where chapter 27 ends. Now if we could take up chapter 28, if somebody would read uh, Acts 28 verses 1 through 6 and we will get started with the rest of the story. Any volunteers? All right, so go ahead. <laughs> Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed, welcomed us all 
because it was raining and cold. Cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastens it, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice was not justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook off the snake into the fire and suffered no ill effect. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting for a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was also, and said he was a god. Thank you. Very vivid story. Uh, Malta is where they are. Those who knew where Malta was, those who had maps or charts, would have realized at that moment that that island where they'd blown up was about four to five hundred miles west of Crete where they first had caught the storm. They'd been driven more than 400 miles west and they managed to land on the only habitable rock that um, they could have landed on before getting blown all the way perhaps to Corsica or Sardinia, another several hundred miles to the west. There is a hymn that we sing at least twice a year. We know it often by its first line, Eternal Father, strong to save. We sing it at uh, Memorial Day and again at Veterans Day or around Veterans Day. And uh, it's, it's colloquially known as the Navy Hymn. It was written in the middle 1800s by an Englishman with connections to the Royal Navy and it was quickly adopted by the Royal Navy as its, as its uh, hymn. It is broadened in its appeal. It's, it's used by the merchant navies. It was adopted by the United States Navy and by the navies of all of the Commonwealth countries. It was been, it's been sung at the funerals of American presidents with connections to the Navy. Uh, JFK, Nixon, and Ford all served in the Navy in the South Pacific in World War II. It was sung at their funerals. It was sung at the funeral of FDR, who had been Secretary of the Navy in World War I. We've got two living ex-presidents who were Navy veterans, so I expect that we will hear it sung again at least twice at funerals. Um, it also was sung on the deck of HMS Prince of Wales when Churchill and Roosevelt met at Placentia Bay in Newfoundland in 1941 to hammer out the Atlantic Charter. America wasn't in the war yet, but it was really in Churchill's interest to encourage America to support the Allied cause, and so he very carefully crafted a uh, church service that would emphasize all of the common heritage of the United States and Great Britain. He insisted that they use readings from the King James Bible, and he insisted that they used hymns that were familiar to both uh, nations and in fact uh, this hymn was sung, uh, the Navy hymn was sung at the end of that service by both American sailors and British sailors and their officers in one church service. I, I bring this up not because I'm a history nerd and find it interesting, though I am and I do, but because the, the, the hymn name, the name of the tune given by the hymnist, if you if you will uh, open the hymnal to that hymn and look at the bottom of the page and see the hymn name in italics, it's Melita. 
Uh, if you research the name Melito, you'll find that it's not only the name of a sandwich bread, but it's also, it is the Greco-Latin name for the island of Malta. And in the original King James Bible, verse 1 of chapter 28 translates the name of the island as Melita. Uh, it hadn't been anglicized yet in the English language to Malta, so they were still using the Greco-Roman name for the island. The hymnist clearly had Paul's shipwreck in mind as he was writing that hymn. He drew heavily from the text of Psalm 107, which is... Um, which is also about seamen and ships and shipwrecks and the hazards of the sea, but um, especially the the line at the end of at the end of each stanza, "O hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea," reminds us of of Paul's shipwreck, and in fact that was very much in the mind of the hymnist Melita, Malta. This is where they are now. The Greek word for the natives, which um, which Stuart read as Islanders. Didn't, wasn't, it, wasn't it Islanders, I believe? It, it's Islanders in several... Uh, it's natives. It's Islanders here. It's natives in some of the translations. The Greek word is barbaroi, from which we get barbarian. And some translations actually give us barbarian. It is less... That word is less um, dismissive in Greek than it is in English. The etymology of the word is that the Greeks believed that those who did not speak Greek, who were foreigners, who were not cultured enough to speak Greek, spoke in, in a jabber that came out to Greek ears sounding like barbar. So barbaroi was the Greek word for foreigners who were not Hellenized enough to be able to speak Greek. Uh, but they were a very hospitable people, as we can see from the story. They, they, they bring out firewood and they, they kindle a fire and they warm these poor shipwrecked wretches who've been two weeks on board this uh, this floundering vessel. Frank, you had a question or a comment? Uh, point of interest, which is probably not very interesting, but my daughter goes to a big Episcopal, uh, downtown Episcopal church in Beaumont, Texas, and we were out there, I think it was during the lamp, two or three years ago, and the priest conducted the service and with his, all of his, you know, garb, what do you call the, you know, the, the white... His vestments. Vestments, okay. But anyway, it turned out that he had been called up he was in the reserve, in the naval reserve, and he'd been called up. So, about toward the end of the service, they they went through. This, he's kind of a jerk, but I mean, he was you know, <laughs> <laughs> personally. When I was in the army, we thought all the guys in the navy were anyway, jerks. Go ahead. They went through this thing where he, he he took off all of his vestments, and he had he, he I think he was a lieutenant. And they they played the navy hymn while he was doing this, and he took off his stuff, and he had his full naval uniform. And with great pomp and I don't remember, there was some more part of the ceremony. He marched down the aisle, you know, with great ceremony and out of the church. And he was gone. You know, and the Navy hymn was playing the whole time. And when I thought about Steve putting his coat on over his running gear, and then this Navy hymn yeah, just seemed like it all fell in place. So, that's, really, that's, that's really a great story. Um, there, we, we could talk about the, the connections between the Navy in the church in um, in England going back to the earliest days of the Navy, but we we won't get there, but um, that's a really interesting story. Um, I, I haven't been to many of these places, but you know what I was thinking 
I promise you at your next cocktail party, if you if you spin all of that out about Nalita, you will find these looks of amazement in the group. Or you'll be the only one in your group. Well, if they've had a if they've had a couple of cocktails, wait until they they're a little bit oiled up, and then I think you'll really impress some folks. But these barbarians have built a fire, and um, and Paul goes and he gathers brushwood for the fire. This story really shows Paul in an incredibly flattering light, but not consciously so. I, there there are no there are no Homeric adjectives to describe Paul's conduct, but he's he's a very unassuming uh, man. He he has been the one, if we saw in the last chapter, um, who has warned from the beginning that this that this voyage was going to lead to disaster. They were sailing in weather that they should not be sailing. Uh, these grain ships were not terribly seaworthy. They tended to be loaded down so much that the that the draft was very deep and they did not handle well at all. They had one large square sail so they were not maneuverable in a storm and being being so loaded they could not very well ride the waves which is one of the reasons why they threw all the cargo overboard in chapter 27. But here um, is Paul who is warned of this but has also told all of the passengers on board the ship that they would they would survive the shipwreck because the angel has told him that he will go to Rome. Uh, Paul is imperturbable in all of this, and here we are. They're on the, the shore, and instead of warding it over everybody else that he's been right all along and they've been wrong, Paul goes out unassumingly and collects brushwood to add to the fire. He picks up a pile of brush with probably what was a hibernating snake in it, the snake is um, is warmed up by the by the heat, bites Paul on the hand, hangs off of his hand, called a viper in some of the um, translations. Although um, one of the commentaries tells us that, that today there are no poisonous snakes on the island of Malta. I don't know if they were stamped out, driven out the way St. Patrick supposedly drove them out of Ireland, or or whether. Uh, this was not a poisonous snake, but just a snake that bit Paul. But the Barbaroi, the natives, expected that Paul was going to drop dead, and they saw in it the action of the gods, that Paul was, they had obviously figured out that this was a shipload of prisoners headed to Rome, and must have figured that the gods were striking Paul even though he was safe on the shore. And when he didn't die, they went from thinking that he was a murderer whom the gods had caught up with to thinking that he was a god himself. That's how fickle these natives were. But Paul, imperturbable Paul, through the whole of it, very unassumingly goes about his business. A thoroughly manly man. Uh, a man who, who, who does very um, brave and noble and just things without assuming on himself some sort of um, some sort of improper um, conduct or improper uh, carriage for his very proper conduct. Saying they suspected that you know it was a load of prisoners, remember they'd all been chained. So even though it wouldn't have been like we think of handcuffs, he could go about and so you know you easily think that he was probably a murderer, which most of the others probably were. 
and being, being pagans, seeing Paul bitten by the snake, they thought, aha, the gods have caught up to him nonetheless. But when he didn't die, they said, well, he, he must be one of those gods. But, of course, Paul was none of those things. Um, if somebody would read verses 7 through 10, let's look at the next step in the evolving story. Any volunteers, Frank? Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands that belonged to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us, honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Okay, thank you. Um, the Greek word for the um, office that Publius held implies that he was a local official. Of course, Malta was part of the Roman Empire. It lies, if you, if you check the map, it is due south of the island of Sicily. Um, and of course, as we said before, due west of the island of Crete, very close to the island of Sicily, it was a... Another reason that Melita is an interesting name for the hymnist to have given it, it was a Royal Navy base, the, the, the main port at Valletta, if I pronounced it correctly. Uh, the main port is um, what was the uh, headquarters of the British Mediterranean fleet for more than 100 years until Malta gained independence in the 1960s. Um, the island itself, uh, where, where they were was another corner of the island. This was not the large natural harbor, but a very uh, small bay on the northeastern tip of the island, which explains why they, um, you know, they, were, they were wrecked in the bay rather than safely getting into the harbor and being able to, to, uh, to land. But we see that Publius was a local official uh, a big man on the island and probably didn't take all 276 um, of the shipwrecked men into his home, but took some of them, and Paul healed his father. Now, interestingly, we have two different verbs. In, um, in verse 9, Paul cured the... He healed the father... Publius's father by praying and putting his hands on him uh, and, and healed him, cured him that way. But in that's in verse 8. In verse 9, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases came and were cured. Well, the verb for, um, for curing and healing in verse 8 that Paul did uh, is the verb for some sort of a miraculous cure, a laying on of hands, and there's no question from the way um, it's written that this was a miraculous Christian um, laying on of hands and a miraculous cure. But the verb for uh, in verse 9 for what was done to these islanders who had diseases is the uh, Greek word that's the root of our word therapy. 
And we remember that Luke was very careful with his Greek. He wrote in very elevated Greek, which is one of the reasons we, we, we know not only that he was from the Greek part of the world, but that Luke was a cultured Greek and probably also was a physician from some of the Greek words that he used. And so it's intriguing to wonder if this may be one of the first examples of, of, a, of a medical mission. Um, Paul is, uh, is preaching the gospel while they're on shore in Publius's house and the sick and the halt and the lame from around are coming and Luke, the physician, is, uh, Paul is praying over them and Luke is ministering to them with his, uh, with his medical knowledge. Interesting point that whether we're talking about Luke applying his, um, his medical knowledge, his science, or Paul applying his miraculous Christian energy to the laying on of the hands, in both cases, it's the work of God. And Steve? I point out here, if you think back to the last section we read, is that the viper, the snake, came up and bit him, and nothing happened, and the people thought he was a god. Well, one thing there was different is that while they thought he may have been a god, they didn't worship him like in other places when they saw the apostles do something or something happened to them. And so then when Paul heals... It opens up between the snake having not harmed him and him curing. It opened up a go. There's several words in there. I'm not going to pretend to pronounce correctly. That's fine. I couldn't either. After three months, we set sail on the ship. It wintered in the island. The ship of Alexandria, the twin gods as the figurehead. Putting in Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regiment. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Pura. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum or Aphidus in three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with his soldiers and Thank you. Um, we have a number of place names in this reading, and you did a pretty good job with them, I'd, I'd say. Um, the first, they, they, they caught on with another Alexandrian ship. And the fact that it's an Alexandrian ship like the ship that on which they were shipwrecked tells us it was probably a grain ship. That is, um, the province of, of Egypt was the breadbasket for 